From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. Good to have you join us. Global temperatures were the highest ever recorded in early July. More hottest days ever are coming. So we'll look at how cities cope with climate change and other environmental challenges. Can building cities with high-level urban resilience be the solution? And pizzas apparently are not selling at the rate they used to in China. Is pizza losing its appeal among Chinese consumers? For today's program, I'm joined by Yu Shun in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's roundtable. The notion of urban resilience is gaining prominence in light of challenges faced by cities withstanding climate change. China looks to attain its dual carbon goal, which is to peak carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. Urban resilience could be an important piece of the puzzle in hitting the target. On June the 17th, the Shanghai municipality hosted a special forum, which gathered researchers and experts in the fields of climate, architecture. Urban planning and low-carbon solutions to find some answers. The title of the forum, C High, stands for the abbreviation of Space Entertainment Art Shanghai Innovate. So, first of all, let's try to explain to everybody what urban resilience or 韧性城市 stands for.、Mm. According to the definition proposed by the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, which is the ICLEI. An international organization promoting sustainable development, a resilient city refers to a city's ability to withstand disasters, 
mitigate losses and efficiently allocate resources for rapid recovery from disasters. And in the current academic and social context, disasters can encompass natural disasters, event with significant societal impacts such as wars, and health crises such as pandemics. Urban resilience has become one of the core arguments for sustainable urban development, focusing on effectively addressing various changes or shocks and reducing uncertainty and vulnerability in the development process. Yeah, Josh, what's your idea of urban resilience? And it is becoming more of a popular concept discussed around the world when it comes to how do these cities、um, face up to the challenges of climate change these days? Yeah, it's definitely a concept that is becoming more and more popular and more central to basically debates around how to make people live in a greener way, in a more environmentally Friendly way, and basically, how do we include the population in environmental protection? And it's a really difficult question, actually. And I think it's probably the biggest question, given that the population, the humans, the urban society, if you like, are responsible for most of most environmental damage, right? Not all of it, for sure, but a lot of it does come down to.、Um, This issue, and so yeah, I, this idea of urban resilience is quite interesting to me because, I mean, what what does it really mean? Does it、mm. mean that people are just more environmentally conscious?、Um, does it mean that we have to take more resp- responsibility and more active steps in our day to day living?、Um, do we need to increase our awareness、um, and have? You know, take more of an individual responsibility. I, I'm not really sure whether responsibility lies here. I guess we can discuss that. Yeah, I think it's about the city, but of course we know that the city are consist of all of the you know societal contacts of、uh, you know the citizens, the infrastructure, and the facilities. So I think the resilience part here means that、um, how the ability of the city. To you know, withstand all of these、um, disasters by using all of their facilities and infrastructures, and of course, the awareness of the citizens in the importance of protecting the environment. Yes, and we're seeing that. Well, the humanity right now is encountering calamities that we have not seen in. Uh, hundreds of years, to say the least, and it seems like、um, with these huge clusters of urban areas that house so many people,、um, there are many ways that probably requires us to sort of adjust the way we live, we conduct our lives, which can ultimately cut carbon、uh, emissions and possibly. Offer a different sort of solution towards these difficulties that we are facing these days. And then when we look at the Chinese cities these days, what are the main challenges that you can list for us?、Mm. And we'll see what can be done to address these challenges. Yeah. First of all, we we know that China is a country with huge landscape. But our population, industry, and infrastructure are highly 
concentrated in urban areas, especially in the eastern part of the country, the coastal provinces especially. But we know that they are most threatened by climate change, mostly like the natural disasters like typhoon or rainstorms. And another theory is about inland cities. Inland cities could also be affected by climate change-induced disasters.、Um, some international research teams believe that the air pollution from industries and traffic could have caused the extreme floods. That devastated Southwest China, which is the Sichuan and Chongqing area, in 2013. There might be a linkage between the lingering cap of soot and the heavy rainfall. Yes, and are some of these challenges or difficulties being shared across the board in other cities around the world? Yeah, I I, I think so, definitely.、Um, numerous cities around the world are actually. Uh, hailed for their resilience, and they've proven to be very resilient、um, in the face of、uh, the ones that I think get most of the attention, at least that I was aware of, are cities placed in areas of the world that are more susceptible to natural disasters.、Um, Singapore is an example. That's、um, one that、uh, I was aware of, and when I thought about a resilient city, I, I thought about Singapore because、um, of its ability to manage things like land scarcity. Um, water security and climate change, and、uh, actually, this this city, which is like a city state, right, has invested heavily in innovative urban urban planning and things like this. So,、um, but these issues do go all over the world, and I guess every part of the world has to have different types of resilience. In my own country, which I know I always talk about, but I guess this is the one that I know the most about. I can give you another example、um, of a city that struggles with resilience, actually. And that is the city of York, which is basically my hometown, or at least it's the biggest city closest to my home of Scarborough. York suffers a lot from flooding, the United、mm. Kingdom. So this is this is an issue、um, around the UK that often、uh, at some point in the year, even though our country is not known for severe weather conditions, yet still、um, we we have problems with flooding, especially in cities like York. And some of the images that I could show you that happen are really quite shocking. There are houses just completely underwater,、um, and so this is quite difficult. Because one of the main reasons that this is difficult is because I think one characteristic of a resilient city is actually flexibility and adaptation. So、mm. the city needs to somehow be flexible. This includes things like literally infrastructural systems that can respond to dynamic challenges, like. A building that I think most of us know that very very tall buildings they don't stay static, right? They're actually able to move slightly, and this is really important. So, old cities like the historic city of York in the United Kingdom isn't particularly flexible. So, this this is one of the issues in my own country that we see. But I think it just goes to show that all over the world there's a multitude of and a diversity of challenges. That face these cities, and I think one of the main factors, characteristics, as I mentioned, that a city needs to be resilient is flexibility and adaptability and diversity. And that is definitely a challenge for some of the cities to try to convert more towards this kind of goal of urban resilience. And、uh, with 
climate change and rising sea levels and some cities in certain countries, depends on the geographic location, could just be far more prone to these vulnerable states. Um, and here's a term of low elevation coastal zone. And this has been highlighted here in China, um, sort of to alert people of um, this particular difficulty. Yes. And we know that these low elevation coastal zones, they are defined as the contiguous area along the coast, which is less than 10 meters above sea level, and it is vulnerable to flooding and storm surge. But the thing is that the amount of the area of these LECZ in China is pretty huge. You know, um, the total area of LECZ in China is 193,000 kilometer squares, which accounts for about 2% of China's land area and 14.6% of all land area in China's coastal provinces. And there are even more than 164 million people living in the LECZ, covering 27% of the total population in coastal China and 12% of the total population in China. Mm. And they are actually facing a lot of, you know, challenges. Uh, aside from what we have already mentioned, these rainstorms and um, typhoons, you know, they also have the risk of the submergence of low-lying cities by rising sea level and weakened drainage of the coastal cities. And that sounds like a big problem. And mm. this is what could trigger climate migration. And this has been seen as more sort of pretends uh, in the future as kind of a dire but maybe necessary move of a certain people and vast groups of people around the world. And whether that is going to happen is a question here. And in order to cope with all these challenges and changes that we see these days, building or enhancing urban resilience is important. And like what Josh alluded to earlier, are we talking about something of sort of awareness in the minds of humans and how we should change our conduct of living to build resilience? Or is it more about infrastructure, about how the city is constructed to enhance resilience? So I guess the question here essentially is how do you do it? I think it's a combination. You know, what you have mentioned, it's the combination of all of these factors. And after that, we can build urban resilience. And also, it's it's not only one city's responsibility. You know, if you want to build the urban resilience of one certain city, and it's very important to collaborate with other cities, um, more and more disasters have shown that no city can handle everything on its own. And that active collaboration among cities is very crucial. So many experts say it is necessary to enhance the resilience of infrastructure by establishing some digital integrated response platform and enabling information exchange and feedback between different levels, departments and regions so that it will optimize urban dynamic perception and monitoring or early warning and response structures for disasters and risks, and then strengthen 
cross-regional, cross-sector or cross-industry collaboration and coordination so that we can have these kind of information sharing, resource utilization and multi-party collaboration thing to be done and we can you know, faster enhance the urban resilience. That sounds great in theory, but could you give us like an example of on the ground? How can urban resilience be achieved? Well, as we've discussed, the concept of urban resilience is pretty multifaceted, right? And it can be different depending on the city, depending on the part of the world, depending on the issues that the city may face. For some cities, it may be urban resilience against a particular type of natural disaster. For example, I mentioned York and flooding, or in certain parts of East Asia, it might be earthquakes, for example. Um, there's many things. And for some cities, it might be violence. It might be against something like organized crime. So it really depends. But there's there's so many examples of what's been done. One example I can give you outside of China, at least, is Copenhagen mm -hmm. in Denmark. And this is a city, and I think this is sort of piggybacking off what Yushun was talking about and also what I wanted to mention about longevity and sustainability, where I think it should be at the heart of um, urban resilience, actually. But Copenhagen in Denmark is internationally recognized for its commitment to sustainability, um, resilience and climate action. So one initiative that it's taken, something that's actually been done, is uh, an initiative to reduce carbon emissions. Um, it's uh, actually created a really holistic approach. Um, for example, uh, promote cycling and pedestrian friendly infrastructure. So that's been to create new cycle routes. This is just one example. And I think that although this may seem, it depends on the person, I guess, but it may seem like a small thing, just creating more cycle paths. Actually, this is just one of one thing that adds up to a bigger picture of a, a resilient urban city, because I guess if you've got more cycle lanes, you're going to have more people cycling, hopefully. You're going to improve uh, air pollution, right? You're going to reduce air pollution, sorry, I should say. Um, and you're going to improve the... Um, quality of living for all of the city residents. And uh, it, it will then have a knock-on effect on everything else. It may make people in the city more environmentally conscious. Um, it can lead to... I know that the cycle path isn't the start of this, maybe not the first domino, right? But it's just an example of something that can be done that affects everything. And really, when we're talking about urban resilience, we're talking about almost like um, biodiversity, I think. We're talking about everything linking together. And that includes the way buildings are built. It includes the amount of traffic congestion. It includes recycling bins. It rec includes all of these things. Yes, that's a really good point. And when you look at uh, different cities, they have come up with their own parts of the solution, I guess, trying to address, yes, just the changing climate that we are living with these days. And in recent years, China has rolled out a scheme to build up the so-called urban resilience in cities. And we have a framework as such. You shouldn't. Could you walk us through the framework and how does it proceed in China? Mm. Currently, some cities in China have emphasized the importance of building urban resilience in government work reports and overall urban plannings. Various cities have adopted 
corresponding measures with their own unique characteristic during the construction process. For example, um, some mega cities like Shanghai, Beijing, and Shenzhen they have um, they have already released related policies. And um, here is one example: Beijing attaches great importance to the construction of resilient cities and is the first city in the country to incorporate the task of building resilient cities into its overall urban planning. And the construction plan of Huairo District in Beijing has pointed out the construction for gas safety, integrated operation monitoring center and technology iteration platform to, you know, enhance the built the, the construction of urban resilience. And another example I could think of is the example of Henan, which is in central China. Because we know that the unprecedented heavy rainfall in Zhengzhou, Henan province in 2021 further highlighted the importance of urgency of accelerating the construction of a resilient city. So um, in 2022, their government work report also included these construction of resilient cities and continuously enhance the foundation and modernization level of disaster prevention, reduction, and relief to make people's life better and um, the city more comfortable to live. Yes, and Josh, what are some of the international examples that you can give us that might be doing something similar or different when it comes to urban resilience? Well, there's uh, some more examples that I can give you. and. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's different types of urban resilience. One interesting example is a city in Colombia called Medellin. And this city actually successfully transformed itself. It had quite a violent history in this city, right? And um, it's managed to turn itself into a pretty resilient, inclusive urban environment in this city. And the, one of the ways that it's done this is through community engagement, um, new innovative urban planning, more green spaces, especially in the marginalized neighborhoods of the city. And it's done things like improve mobility. This seems to be a really common theme for cities that struggle with this. So what that means is improve roads, improve urban, um, sorry, improve public transportation and things like this and create public spaces that promote things like social so, um, socializing, right, and going out like parks and things like this. And actually now the city has really been seen as an example uh, of going on a sort of resilience journey. So that's one way and one issue that a city has dealt with that I guess isn't a natural disaster related kind of issue. Um, mm -hmm. Also, very developed cities like New York. I think New York uh, has faced many challenges, similarly London as well. Um, but unlike London, we must remember that in New York, actually, natural disasters are an issue. And there was um, a, a serious natural disaster in 2012 called Hurricane Sandy. Mm. And this highlighted the need for enhanced resilience. And since that time, which was over 10 years ago now, the, the city has prioritized things like um, uh, focus on climate change, climate resistance, um, creating more resilient infrastructure, buildings, coastal protection, um, emergency management systems and things like this. So uh, New York has also been seen as a model for other similar cities facing similar risks. Yeah. And cutting carbon emission is part of 
the grand scheme of um, urban resilience. And we've seen here in China, there has been a launch of low carbon pilot projects that is devoted to that cause. What do we know about that? Yeah, in July 20, 2010, National Development and Reform Commission initiated a pilot program of national level low carbon provinces and cities in order to materialize the 2020 target of China in controlling greenhouse gas emission. On top of that, Sponge City is a concept that we've discussed for a few years, and um, but it's been rolled out at different rate in different places. Um, give us the latest skinny on it. Yes, I quite actually like this kind of idea of Sponge City. You know, first of all, is the name of it. It just sound quite cute for the city. And another thing is that um, it's not only. First of all, we need to know what is a sponge city, right? It's mainly focusing on urban rainwater and flood management. And the project aims to reduce the effect of urban development on ecological environment by preserving 70% of the rainfall. So it means that it's not only the ability of withstanding the disaster, the rainfalls, but also better utilizing the disaster. You know, I think of course, we need better systems in controlling the underground water or all of these infrastructures in recycling. But I think it is absolutely one of the great projects that we are seeing to, you know, actually enhancing the urban resilience. Yes, and that's something a lot of cities do need. And in a fair number of these cities, they lack funding, they lack overall planning, and we need more cooperation, collaboration between cities as well to make urban resilience more of concrete action than a fancy concept that exists in the books. Coming up during the second half of the show, pizzas are apparently not so popular in China anymore. Is it true? Stick around and we'll find out more about it. D-Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Yu Shun in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, sales at pizza companies are growing much slower than they did previously. Are Chinese consumers shifting away from pizzas? Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. And we love that you listen to the show. We would love to hear from you. Your observations, questions, and comments are all appreciated. You can reach us at EZFMRoundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured in the show in our heart-to-heart segment, but you'll need to send that audio question to us first. And please allow me to reiterate again, there's a place to do it, EZFMRoundtable at foxmail.com. Now on Roundtable, as we continue today's discussion. 
Pizza, the beloved staple of Italian cuisine, has found its way to almost every corner of the globe, captivating taste buds and winning over hearts with its cheesy goodness. A recent financial report on pizza companies in China shows that sales are sluggish. Have Chinese patrons lost their appetite for pizzas? Well, sales at pizza companies are growing much slower, and so how are these companies doing here in China? Well, I have to say, at least compared to some other Western fast food options, pizza indeed hasn't gained the same level of popularity in China, because we can see recently the pizza brand Domino's. Went public on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, revealing in its prospectus that Domino's Pizza in China is expected to operate at a loss in 2023, with losses far exceeding those of 2022. The company also anticipates sustaining losses over the next three years, and also some industry leaders have not performed very well either, according to Xueqiu, which is a finance information platform, Pizza Hut. Who owns the biggest market share with 37.4 percent in China's pizza industry in 2022? Its revenue declined by seven percent year on year to 1.96 billion U.S. dollars, with comparable store sales dropping by six percent. And another fact is that pizza store density is also not big enough in China, according to ChinaBaoGao.com, an industry analysis institute. In terms of store density, China has a relatively low number of pizza stores compared to developed countries, with only 9.8 pizza restaurants per million people, which is one third of the number in Japan and South Korea. Interesting. So、mm. it seems, just by the look of numbers, Chinese people are maybe just not that fond of pizza. This one particular dish.、Mm. Well, Josh. Tell us about the love for pizza elsewhere. <laughs> well, I don't think it's any secret that pizza is—it's more than loved elsewhere. I, I would say that pizza is almost a staple,、um, you, and I—I I, I guess everybody knows what that means, right? But I think it is a fundamental, almost food piece of food in itself that people live off. Some people openly say that they live on pizza. In certain parts of the world,、uh, in the West especially, it is so popular.、Um, it's dominant everywhere, literally.、Uh, Josh, can I just quickly ask you?、Um, yeah. So, is pizza that dominant? For example, in the UK, you know, well, we know that、uh, pizza, well, at least you know the term and the dish, is said to have been originated from Italy, but Making pizza big around the world, there's one argument that it's the Americans who managed to do that. So, what is it like? I guess is、uh, the question here.、Um, let's say you know, with its popularity, even in the UK and、um, you know all these other countries. Yeah. Well, just to mention one thing, I think that、uh, a lot of sticklers would probably say that it, it's not America that made pizza big because pizza became popular in America because of the Italians. So yeah.、Um, so so I guess the, we've still got to give credit to the Italians here, but I do understand what you mean because I know that American pizza is different to Italian pizza, and that style of pizza, the American style of pizza, probably has become 
more internationally available with franchises like Domino's, right? Um, and things like this. And, and also, uh, could is, you hmm. could you provide a distinction between American pizza and what's you know Italian pizza? Because actually, this is really funny. Because um, for more, most Chinese pe people, when we think of pizza, not everybody think of Italy, and you think of the kind of stuff you're being served in Pizza Hut. But mm. once you're actually out in the world, and then I was really surprised when I arrived in. Uh, yeah, it was actually in in the UK when um you mentioned oh you want to go to Pizza Hut and people were like huh that's <laughs> not like a high end place at all and nor does it serve real pizza so yeah what's the distinction of real pizza and you know what you get served in these fast food restaurants so when you say real pizza are you talking about Italian pizza well I'm trying to you know alluding alluding <laughs> okay. Um... <laughs> Okay, well, I think that it would probably be most fair of me to describe the differences from a consumer perspective because I am not an expert and I'm not a chef of, of neither type of Italian or American um, variety. So from a consumer perspective, somebody who's eaten a lot of pizza and coming from the UK where there is an abundance of Italian and American pizza restaurants, I would say that some of the main differences lie in the size and also the thickness of the base of the pizza is something. So that's one thing that you can distinguish between. American pizza, often the base is a lot thicker. So mm -hmm. the dough, right? The dough is often a lot thicker. And consequently, everything else on top of it is also a lot thicker. So there's a lot more of it. There's often a lot more cheese. The toppings are often uh, a lot more. Um, you, you may find a lot of things like meat feast pizzas, and things like this. Um, there are even like Chicago deep dish pizzas, right? Which are, I don't know if you've ever seen these, but they almost look like cakes in their size. <laughs> they might be sort of two or even three, uh, even four inches in height. And they, they've got layers of pizza in them, right? So that's a pie. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And they call them pizza pies, actually. Oh. They, they would call them pizza pies. So it is basically a pie, right? Mm. And this, I think, is sort of traditional American style anyway, right? If you went to eat any sort of American food, often it's well known for its size, right? Italian food is known for quality over quantity. And although it's a very carb heavy type of cuisine with things like pasta, all right, all the varieties of pasta, which is basically a dish that's almost 90% carbs, right? And the pizza though, um, is, is different to American pizza in that the base is often very thin and it's also quite sauce heavy. Italian food puts a great emphasis on the sauce, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's pasta or pizza. And a lot of traditional Italian pizza, which I prefer myself, you will have sort of less cheese or it may be sort of like islands of mozzarella swimming in sauce, <laughs> right? On a very thin, crispy base. And for me, oh, it's making my, my mouth water just saying it. But there are some distinctions that I've noticed as a consumer of pizza for many, many years. Yeah. And when you mention the pizza pies, mm -hmm. they might have um, a Chinese equivalent ages ago, even before we've ever heard of the pizza pies, you know, like, and that's also possibly why some Chinese consumers would prefer our own pancakes with mm. fillings meaty fillings or, or some variation of that 
that is a homegrown dish and often sold at an affordable price, as opposed to going to a pizza restaurant. Yes, and that is, I think, one of the reasons that why pizza is not that popular in China because we just have so many alternatives, so much even better alternatives. <laughs> Uh, or similar products available, right?、Um, first thing is that aside from pizza, we have other fast food choices like fried chickens or cutlets or even steaks. And another thing is that as a country with a strong tradition of consuming flour-based foods,、mm. or just you know the doughs or people or whatever they call it, people are very familiar with various types of pancakes and breads, such as layered pancakes. 千层饼 scallion pancakes, ah,、uh, 葱花饼 yeah, 葱葱花饼 egg filled pancakes, 鸡蛋灌饼 ooh, that's nice, and crispy pancakes, 锅盔 is like some、oh. kind of a crispy thing. Oh, now you're making my mouth water. Yeah, you know there are thousands of、um, varieties we can see in China's, you know, food factory. I would say. <laughs> Um, Food culture for sure. Yeah, yeah, and also the way you, the examples you just gave, Yushun, they, to in my humble opinion, they are a little bit more difficult than making pizza. Although the practitioners、mm. in the industry, they would be able to do it really quickly. I, I, I can sense Josh is <laughs> shaking his head in dismay, but but just、uh, allow me. <laughs> Let me just quickly finish my argument, and then you can have your、sure. comeback. Sorry. So basically, yeah, with pizza.、Um, okay, I apologize to all Italian chefs out there. Okay, this is just <laughs> disclaimer. Wow.、Uh, you know, just for argument's sake. Okay. When you're cooking pizza, is basically yeah. I'm sure you have your fancy ways of making the dough, and、mm. then it's just throwing stuff on top.、Mm. And that's it. And throw it in the oven. But with all those numerous examples that Yushun you just gave, it requires okay, certainly less toppings, less、uh, ingredients. But the the method of making the dough and、uh, some of the fillings, it's it's just. More elaborate, if I may say. Okay, so Josh, you have your opinion, and please share it with us. Well, I mean, I I know, I know that you're <laughs> you're being purposely provocative a little bit, but、uh, I I also think that of course Italian ingredients are simple, but I I think in essence this this is also something that's really important in why it might not be as popular in China because I think that the Chinese palate traditionally I think people. Want more flavor or a variety of flavor, right? And I think that's an important point when we're talking about the popularity or lack of popularity for pizza in China. But、um, to come back to your point, I think that also、uh, it's important to note that when ingredients are more simple, when the simplicity of the ingredients is definitely a hallmark of Italian cooking. But this also, I think, means that mastering the technique of Making those ingredients taste good is is also very crucial for those authentic flavors and textures. And I think that although I've eaten Italian food probably more than any other cuisine throughout my life, being British,、mm-hmm. it's been only on a handful of occasions that I've eaten proper Italian cooking、mm-hmm. and really been blown away by it. And 
I, I think that, for, for instance, properly cooking pasta and making pasta from scratch, although pasta as a flavor, one could, I think, quite fairly argue that it's not particularly exciting or explosive in the mouth, right? But still, I think making pasta properly, making it well-balanced, mm -hmm. like a well-balanced risotto, really requires a lot of practice and attention to detail. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that mastering anything uh, when it comes to cooking or anything in life, becoming a master of anything, usually takes a similar amount of time, I would argue. Um, and yeah, I, I think that ultimately it comes down to the, the taste that we all have individually and the culture that we're brought up in and the food that we learn to love and the nostalgia we have for various types of cooking. For me and many Westerners, Italian food is definitely one of those cuisines. Yes, and I think another point is that about the nature of pizza, you know, of course, you can say you, you just so love how authentic it could be, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> it is a big, big flatbread. <laughs> and um, because of this nature of pizza, and it has something to do with Chinese people's dining culture, you know, mm. in Chinese dining, people enjoy having multiple dishes to make the meal more satisfying or diversified. On the contrary, the main course is not essential during group meals and um, can even be replaced by desserts, actually, if you are treating you know, pizza as kind of a main course. So when five or six people gather for a meal ordering two pizzas, then that's basically already considered quite a lot. But compared to ordering dishes at a Chinese restaurant, the variety and flavors of pizza are limited, right? You know, compared to all of these eight categories of Chinese cuisines and each category possess like millions of dishes in but, these. But you shouldn't. Can I just say something? I mean, I, I, I've got to go to the defense here because I don't think it's just a big flat <laughs> bread, right? I think I, no. okay, let's take the equivalent when we talk about a big sociable meal, right? That people are sharing. Yes, we will take a pizza. And I think one of the most popular ones in China would be something like hot pot, right? Now, mm -hmm. when I go to hot, what is even the flavor anymore? There's so many flavors. These sauces have so many different things in them. Mm -hmm. It's so spicy sometimes that I don't even know what I'm tasting anymore. I, I don't, I can't tell what it is. At least with pizza, I can tell this is the tomato base. I can taste the onion. I can taste the cheese. I can taste the bread and I can distinguish on my palate which one is which. But I know that we're having a, a pretend argument here, right? But still, <laughs> right. I, I think this a is an important dis distinction. It's an important <laughs> distinction between how we appreciate food in our different cultures, actually, because I know, I think we might be getting to the root of it here, is that for a lot of Westerners, we really like to know exactly what we're tasting, right? And that's why we like to do it step by step. And mm. something like a pizza, is it seems very simple, but actually... I think for a lot of us, we see it as not just being simple, but it being understandable from a palate point of view. Does that make sense in any way? That's really interesting. And it's partially- It's not a big flat bread. <laughs> making sense to me. The, Josh, you sound like somebody who just accidentally, or I don't know, intentionally just went sauce overboard or something. Why don't we just take less sauce or like less 
variations of so many different little I do like, like I do I mean I, when I go there. to when I go to eat hot pot which is very occasionally for me mm. um for for reasons I don't actually eat meat so this is one oh. reason right yeah but um I eat fish though so hmm. I, I don't go that much but I still have a simple sauce people will comment it'll be like is that the sauce that you're gonna have and I say yeah I want to taste it you know I I don't mm. want too much but. well yeah well you will probably like enjoy Japanese food then in that sense but also like when you look, love it yeah right um but also yeah in China the culinary culture is so vast multi-layered multi-faceted and has such a long history and also I suspect that actually a lot of Chinese people are or some Chinese people are into the more simple straightforward light tasting of things but it's those kind of restaurants don't necessarily attract a lot of people and just look at the restaurants that are popular out there that are making money and then it seems to be the ones that and sometimes they try to like outdo each other like try to offer more potent and varied flavors just to attract people and, and in a way maybe this is a vicious cycle and then your patrons their taste buds are destroyed but people are like used to you know having these heavy flavors and then mm. it perpetuates that aspect of um you know what's a popular restaurant that kind of thing. But also there are people who maybe prefer home cooking a bit more who are into the uh the lighter flavoring of things. And then, you know, there are actually people like us who do not like spicy food. And that is just there seems to be, you know, an overwhelming supply of different types of spicy foods, for example, here in China. And also, when we talk about pizza, this is maybe an egg and chicken, which came first question, but uh, the popularity of pizzas in the U.S. could partially be explained by delivery. Because, you know, when it comes to delivery foods, I don't know if it's, this is true in the U.K. as well, Josh, but in the U.S. it seems like the, the most popular option is always pizza. But in China, we don't really have that. When we talk about food deliveries, pizza is one option out of a thousand. And yeah, there isn't really that culture here either. Um, when it comes to pizza deliveries. So, mm. yeah, these are just, you know, some thoughts about the possible explanations of how pizza's doing right now in China. Yeah, that explains that or the reason why Domino's, which primarily focuses on takeout food delivery, has been experiencing losses in China for consecutive years. The food delivery market in China is quite different from that of the U.S. It is often... A group of people ordering pizza for a gathering at home to share and distribute the delivery fee, to be honest. However, in China, individual delivery fees are not very expensive. So that means that the food delivery market is mainly supported by single person consumption. And in that way, the consumption pattern of single person dining and the high price of shareable nature of pizza create certain contradictions. And another thing that I would like to mention is that still the perception of Chinese people towards pizzas, especially these older um, generations, you know, they still think that 
it is quite just something that you can get from the street vendors, which are these traditional Chinese style pancakes, da bing,、oh. and and they just really think that why should I spend basically forty to seventy RMB for a very cheap da bing, which will only cost you for like one or two yuan when you are just buying them in the street vendors. Are there any other reasons why pizzas aren't really?、Mm. Because for these folks, they are raised by all of these down-to-earth food, and <laughs> they will not accept that. Okay, it's becoming a fancy thing that I will eat in a fancy Western restaurant. Okay, well, actually, the same kind of logic. Well, similar, similar logic might apply in other countries as well. Josh, do you see pizza as something you would have in restaurants, or is it more like a home delivery kind of option? No, many, many restaurants, but usually the restaurant pizza would be more Italian. Ah, pizza Hut used to be huge, but actually has declined in popularity. I think in in the last decade or so, and、oh. that was that's more American style. But most of the time. Most of the Italian restaurants that I can think of do serve pizza,、um, but it's more yeah, it's it's Italian, but、yeah. they're everywhere. Interesting. When I go to a, an Italian restaurant, I rarely order pizza because I don't want it to fill up my appetite. I want to、mm. try all these amazing offerings、mm. of、uh, Italian food. Huh. Very interesting. But actually, you know, despite the fact that pizza companies or a number of them are not faring that well in the China market, but Apparently, there are homegrown pizza brands too, and the market isn't necessarily dwindling. Yeah, the number of pizza stores in China actually has also shown explosive growth. To be honest, with an average annual growth growth rate of over ten percent in the pizza chain industry. In terms of market structure, with the development of domestic e-commerce and、uh, food delivery industry. The proportion of online consumption for pizza has been continuously increasing, and data shows that from 2016 to 2020, the online market share of pizza restaurants in China has increased from 34% to 58%. So, what's going on then? What explains this discrepancy? Are some big companies or well-known pizza companies simply? Have they done a terrible job in operation? First of all, I think it must have something to do with some the introduction of some cost-effective products of some Chinese brands.、Oh. You know, they are many domestic pizza brands have launched more affordable options and pizzas that are more suitable for individual consumption. For example, they offer you two slices of the pizza so that you can eat it alone. This makes pizza a more diverse and affordable choice compared to the past when options were limited. Very interesting. Oh yeah, but that explains though the online aspect of、mm. things because everything e-commerce seems to be booming in China for some years. And getting just a slice of the big pizza, yeah, it doesn't really have that group homey feel. But if there's only so much you can eat. I remember going to New York City and just getting that one slice of a ginormous big pizza and、uh, eating it、um, just on the sidewalk, and it was a nice experience.、Um, before we go, there's one important question. 
I know Josh is dying to answer. That is, you know, in China, we're very creative when it comes to pizza toppings. And <laughs> yeah, there's like Peking duck, there's Whoa. certain fruits, there's Kung Pao chicken, and a whole bunch of others. And Josh apparently has a, a bone to pick there. Well, I, I just think that uh, there may be a little bit of uh, a lost in translation here with the pizza. I feel like the pizza hasn't been translated properly because when I go into a lot of restaurants, there's not a single in China, pizza restaurants in China or order from a pizza delivery place in China that I, I don't order because there's not a single pizza that I want to eat. They're all too jazzy. A lot of them don't have a tomato sauce base actually huh? um some of them have like cream bases and that's Italian. and all sorts of <laughs> just too much on them and i think that maybe if there was more if there were more traditional italian pizza restaurants in china i think that people the, the market might um explode honestly i think that many people haven't actually had a proper italian pizza mm. i may be speculating and i apologize to anybody um that uh, is um you know eating italian pizza while listening to this right now in china and is uh, furious with me but yeah i i don't think they've been translated properly and i know that they've been changed to suit the chinese market but it's obviously not working not Let's working bring for in the traditional sources. <laughs> Get some of that tomato sauce on the base. Get rid of the durian, please. Come well, on. Well, yeah, the durian fruit is a love or hate relationship with anybody because I don't know anybody who sort of sits on the fence with, with this one. Okay, well, that's an idea. We need more Italians to introduce their authentic food into the China market because it's a vast market, but, you know, maybe... Maybe there is just huge potential to bring in the real stuff and see if it sticks. And also that actually kind of reminded me of the, you know, famous pineapple made Hawaiian pizza, you know. Um, and I know a kind of a trivia of this pizza is actually originated from a Chinese dish or American version of Chinese dish, which is sweet and sour chicken. And uh, people think that the pineapple in this dish tastes really good. And why don't they just put the canned pineapple on pizza? And then, wow, they have discovered <laughs> Hawaiian pizza. Nice. All right. With that, we end today's discussion of pizzas. Thank you, Josh and Yushun for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.